Um, Numbers chapter 32. I'm going to read from verse number 1, passage of Scripture that God brought me to. And I'm going to do my best to share what the Lord laid on my heart tonight. It says this. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. Somebody say it was a place for livestock. They looked around and they said, We have cows. And this is a good land for cows. And so the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priests and to the chiefs of the congregation, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. And do not take us across the Jordan. They were just shy of entering the promised land and they started looking around at how amenable the land was to their personal needs and they said you know if we found favor we'd like to just stay over here on the east side of Jordan and so uh, tonight I, I want uh, the, the land was was called Gilead it was the the overarching name of the land east of Jordan was the land of Gilead and I want to preach to you and talk to you for the next few moments about pressing past Gilead I believe that God has so much for his church. He has so much for this church. He has so much for individuals, ministry that he wants to birth through people, anointing that he wants to put upon people. There are things that God has called you to do that nobody else can do. Things that God has promised you that, that nobody else can receive, that they're for you. And I, I want to talk to you tonight about pressing past Gilead. Would you pray with me one more time, Lord? We thank you for the anointing we feel in this room, God. We ask your presence to come in and touch us for the next few minutes. And Lord, let your word be opened up to us. And Lord, send us forth, God, with power, authority, and receiving everything that you've called ours in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. God bless you. You can be seated. In his best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the uh, noted author Stephen Covey coined the terms abundance mentality and scarcity mentality. Maybe you've heard these terms, but um, Stephen Covey was the first to talk about them. It's a great book if you've never read it. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal book with many great life principles in it. Um, but Covey had a theory that uh, how a person views their current state against their future opportunity will either cause people to reach for more, to better themselves, to grow, or it will cause them to become possessive and resistant to growth. And it will cause them to react one way or another. How they see the future determines how they handle the present. And so it all depends on their mentality about what is and about what is to come. And, and, and I'll explain that better, but the scarcity mentality refers to people seeing life as a finite pie. So that if one person has a big piece of pie, that leaves less for everybody else. Amen. My family probably has a scarcity mentality about Sister Judy Hodges' pie because I've eaten most of it. 
And so that is the scarcity mentality that if, if they have a lot, they are stealing opportunity from me. They're taking from me. That, that there's only so much to go around. And so if that one person takes a big piece of the pie, then there's not any pie for anyone else. And, and most people, particularly in the corporate world, have been conditioned into a scarcity mentality. It's no wonder that when promotions and raises are scarce, resources are limited, managers hoard information, micromanagement abounds, and generally short-term thinking becomes the norm. A scarcity mentality is often what keeps people from achieving their goals. But on the other hand, the abundance mentality refers to the paradigm that there is plenty out there for everybody. An abundance mentality says there's always more where that came from. Anybody ever met someone like that? they just passing out money left and right. Man, how can you give like that? Well, just money's always coming in and going out. It's just part of life. But generosity is born in the abundance mentality. And so the abundance mentality says there's always more. But the scarcity mentality says that this may be all that there is. And when you get into a mentality that tells you that, that this could be all there is, it changes how you relate to your future. It changes what you're willing to, uh, uh, to pursue and whether or not you're willing to grow. And the reality is that what we believe about what lies ahead affects how we behave. Is it all right if I just lay a foundation for a moment? Somebody say it's a scarcity mentality. And I begin to think about that as I mold over uh, Stephen Covey's words that, that my wife's grandmother, we, we used to make fun of her, sweet lady. In fact, we just, uh, she had her heavenly birthday. She's passed away a few years ago now, yesterday. And um, we, we would laugh because my mother-in-law would go buy groceries and, and my mother-in-law would overdo the groceries. I mean, she would just pack the fridge full and, and from time to time, not all the time, uh, in case my mother-in-law's watching, just every once in a while, um, maybe some lettuce would start to go bad that didn't get used in the fridge, and, and they would take it and they would throw it in the trash can. And then Grandma Great, which is what my little kids called her, she would come in sometime later in the day, and she would find the lettuce in the trash can. And she would take it out of the trash can, and rinse it off and go put it in her refrigerator. She lived in a, 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 a unit behind their house. And so um, it was a common occurrence that, that she was always fishing stuff out of the trash that they um, had thrown out that wasn't good anymore. And, and it didn't matter if it was leftover food, whether she liked it or didn't like it. She, she was determined not to let anything go to waste. And so... We started asking her about it, and, and we would pick at her about it, and she would tell us the stories of how she came up during the Great Depression when food was not abundant at all. And so because she had come up in a time where there was scarcity, she had a different mentality about the things that came into her life and how tightly she held to what she had. 
Um, Another friend, you know, poverty just does this to people. I have a a friend I was talking to on the phone today, and I was telling him a little bit about what I was going to talk about tonight. And he said, man, that's me. He grew up in a home um, where his his mother was a drug addict. His dad worked all the time, and and his family fell apart, and they didn't have much money. And and from the age of five or six, he was at home raising himself, and and, and often the pantries were empty, and and they didn't have money to pay for things. And, And I remember... That, that when we were in Bible college together, he would go buy a brand new pair of pants. He made plenty of money. And he would come home, and the first thing he would do is he said, man, I think I'm going to take these pants back. And I'd be like, man, you just bought those. What are you doing? Your torture? I, well, what if I need the money? And he would go back because that time of poverty in his life had changed his mentality. Now, I, I told him I was going to share this tonight. So I have full permission But he said, that was me. He said, because I grew up thinking I might need that money for something else. It it changed the way he related to his reality. And, And there's something about when you believe that this may be all there is, it causes you to cling more tightly to what you already have in your hands. It causes you to navigate your decisions differently. And so what, when you have a scarcity mentality, uh, you say things like a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Anybody ever said that? We better just stick with what we've got because who knows, we may not have anything in the future. And, and perhaps, just perhaps, this could have been the mentality of the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in our text. Because even as the tribes of Israel are poised to enter into the promised land by crossing the Jordan River, a deputation comes to make a deal with Moses and the leadership of Israel. It was a group of leadership from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And they were uh, enamored with the looks of the land from the middle point east of the Dead Sea, bordering the east bank of the Jordan River, the land of Gilead, all the way up to the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. They they looked around and they said, this is a land for cattle. And we have cows. This is a land for livestock. And that so happens to be what we do. That's our thing. And so they come to negotiate this deal because they had large herds of cattle. And they saw this territory as being the very best grazing land that was available. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. And so the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priests and the chiefs of the congregation, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. And do not take us across the Jordan. We would rather stay here with what we know we have, with what we know we can use, with what God has already given us, what God has already delivered us. We'd rather stay here than cross the Jordan into the promised land. Now consider with me for a moment that the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh had come out of Egypt. They had come through the Red Sea. 
They had survived 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They had watched a previous generation fall in the wilderness for their faithlessness concerning the land of promise. And now just as they are about to enter the land of promise, they look around and they see that where they are at is not too bad. It's not so bad here. It's a land for cattle. It's a land that is well suited to their lifestyle and to their purpose. They have cattle and herds and this is good grazing land. It's a comfortable spot. And isn't it human nature to just land and and enjoy landing in a comfortable spot? Every time I go to Target with my wife, you know where I head? Back there where the furniture is at. Because I know I'm going to be a while. And I go seek out for myself a comfortable spot. A comfortable place. Perhaps some of you, you, you men can relate to that. But isn't it human nature that when you find somewhere comfortable that it's, it's a good place to land. It's a good place to be. And after the rigorous journey to get where they are, you can, just, just hang on with me. You can almost understand. You can almost understand why they took a look around and they said, I think we have all we need here. They surveyed the land that God had given them. Now, now the backstory is is that the Amalekites and King uh, Sihon had attacked Israel as they were passing through the land. And because the enemy attacked them, the Lord delivered this land into their hand. This was not a part of the promised land. This was land that was east of the Jordan. It was never really a part of God's promise to Abraham. It was not a part of the land that Abraham walked through because God had told Abraham, wherever you walk through the land, I will give it to you. This this was not a part of that. This was a blessing of God, but it was not the promised land. It was not what God had brought them out of Egypt for. It was not the land that God had been speaking to them for generations about. It was a good land. It was a land for cattle, but it wasn't the promised land. God had given it to them. The cities and the lands of Gilead were an amenable place. And perhaps it's human nature to just find a good, comfortable place. I know, I know that that's what I like to do. But Reuben and Gad, they looked around and they said, we are willing to stay on the east side of Jordan. We're willing to forfeit whatever God had prepared for us in the land of promise. We're willing to forgo that for what we have here. Now listen, this, this is not a replay of the mistake of their fathers. This is not the same thing as the generation who fell in the wilderness because if it was, they would have had the same result of judgment. This was not the mistake of their fathers who brought an evil report upon the land. This was not faithlessness. They knew that God could deliver them the land. They believed that God, because God had already given them Gilead. They knew that God was able. They knew that the land was not too big for them. They, they did not see themselves as grasshoppers. They, they fully believed. They, didn't, they were not faithless. This wasn't faithlessness. This, this was not fear. They weren't afraid to go in and fight. They had already fought battles for God this was not fear this wasn't an unwillingness to fight 
Scripture bears out that they are well-intentioned and even thankful for what God has already given them. This was simply a case of being satisfied with less than God had planned and prepared for them. Because Gilead is the land of good enough. It is a place of personal satisfaction where the blessings and benefits of what God has already done are comfortable and livable. It's the land of good enough. And that's what Gilead was. They got there and they said, God brought us here. God blessed us here. And this is good enough for us. We don't have to have the promised land. All the stuff that you've been trying to do for generations, God, that's all right. We're good right here. This is good. It's not bad. It's not fearfulness. It's not faithlessness. It's not an unwillingness to fight. It's just that they are satisfied with what God has already given them and done for them. And Reuben and Gad saw that the land was good for cattle. And they could see themselves sustaining a life there. They could see a future there. They could see themselves living things out in this land. And it wasn't the promised land, but it was a good land. It was a land that God had blessed them with. And, 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 and listen, what we have to understand is that there is the perfect will of God and then there is the permissible will of God. And in Romans 12 too, Paul reveals that there are these different avenues and aspects of God's will. He said it this way, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And so what I'm I'm telling you tonight is that there are three categories of the will of God that I, I just want to touch on. There is, first of all, the prescriptive will of God. Just like a doctor gives a prescription, these are the things that God clearly requires of us in His Word. For example, honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. These are non-negotiables. These are the prescriptive will of God. They are the things that are straightforward in God's word. God is saying, I expect these things of you and these things you must do. You must be born again of water and of spirit. It is the prescriptive will of God. Then you have the prohibitive will of God. And you guys know where I'm going already because these are the things that God clearly uh, prohibits in his word and we know these all too well you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal again pretty straightforward because God is saying I I prohibit I forbid you to do these things don't do them so you have the prescriptive will of God, the prohibitive will of God, and then you have the permissive will of God, and these are the things that God neither prescribes nor prohibits, but leaves to our own judgment. And, and, and what I'm driving at here is there is a perfect will of God that Reuben and Gad go into the promised land. It's, it's, it's been in God's plan from the beginning. It's the perfect will of God that they march alongside the other tribes into that land. It's God's will that they inherit li uh, lands for livestock in the promised land. It's, it's the perfect will of God. 
But the reality is that many of us settle for avoiding what God prohibits, even willing to do what God prescribes, but we typically reserve this category for major decisions such as who we marry or what job to take or whether not to have children and so on. And we approach the rest uh, of the Christian life as a set of prohibitions to avoid. As long as I'm going to church and I'm praying and I'm reading the Bible and avoiding terrible sins, we, we get caught up and, and we think we're following Jesus. But God has so much more for us. He has a good and acceptable and a perfect will for every dimension and aspect of our lives. And so what I'm preaching to you is that Reuben and Gad were satisfied living in the permissive will of God because we see in Numbers 32 as they negotiate with Moses and Moses says, listen, if, if, we're, if you're going to inherit this land on this side of the Jordan, are you going to leave your brothers to fight alone in the promised land? And they said, no, 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 no. We'll go fight in the promised land. We'll go fight. We just want to settle over here and we don't want to inherit anything over there. And, and, and they negotiated and it becomes acceptable to both Moses and to Eliezer the priest and even the other tribes of Israel agree. Because after all they're saying we'll, we'll just take our lot over here in the permissive will of God while you guys move on to the perfect will of God. And, and there is a gap between sometimes what God will allow. This is, this is not salvation we're talking about. But we're talking about they're living in a land that God has blessed them in. And God has so much more for them. But they're choosing to live in what God permits. Rather than what God has perfected and purposed for them. And so we, we see this in 1 Samuel 8 when Israel wants a king. They come to, uh, to, uh, to Samuel and they say, we want a king. Like the other nations uh, that are around us, we want a king. And, and he, the prophet says, he's going to take your daughters and he's going to conscript your sons into his army. And he's going to tax your wealth. Are you sure you want a king? Because God never intended for there to be a king. And they said, yeah, we want a king. We want a king. And so God says, okay, you can have a king. God never intended it. God never planned it, but God allowed it. And so the land of Gilead represents the permissible will of God. It wasn't a place of sin. Reuben and Gad recognized the Lord had given them victory there. It was literally a stopping place on the way to something better, intended to be an additional blessing alongside the land of promise. And they made the choice that we're just going to stay here based on what we can see, based on what we understand and our own negotiating, our own needs and our own desires and wants. We think that this is good enough. And ultimately, God allowed it. Moses allowed it. It wasn't a, a sin issue. It didn't excommunicate them from the kingdom of God. But what they were doing is they were settling for less than God had promised them. They did not know what God had prepared for them. They just knew that it's okay here. And things look pretty good here. So we're just going to hang out right here. It feels good here. The weather's good here. 
The land is good here. And so they weren't in sin, but hear me, they weren't moving forward either. They weren't faithless, but they were satisfied with less than God intended and designed for them. You see, God's permissible will will never produce the promises that are attached to God's perfect will. They can never stack up or measure up against one another. You see, what we tend to do is we ask this question, and, and I want to say, Pastor didn't ask me to say this, but I, I think he'll agree with me. Will I be lost is the wrong question. I can't tell you how many people I've sat across the table from and said, well, will I go to heaven or will I go to hell if? That's the wrong question. Now, we believe in Acts 2.38. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But I can't tell you how many people have asked me, will I go to hell if I, if I don't speak in tongues? And I always tell them the same thing. You are asking the wrong question. Because we, I, I can point you to the scripture and say, show where it says you must be born again. And, and everyone that is born of the Spirit is born of the Spirit the same way. And the, the way that they were first born of the Spirit is when the wind began to blow in the upper room. And John 3, 8 says the wind blow where it listeth and you hear the sound thereof and, and you cannot tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. I, I can point you there. But here's the problem. You're asking the wrong question. Because the question is not, will I be lost if I don't take advantage of this promise? The question is, did God design it for me? Did God prepare it for me? Did God promise it to me? And if God said it's mine, nothing in heaven or earth should stop you from wanting what God has prepared for you. Nothing. It's the wrong question. But people love to live in this hazy place of, well, will I be lost? Will I be lost if I skip church? Will I be lost? I, I can't tell you the amount of texts and, and phone calls of people asking the same kind of questions. Well, is it a sin if I, will I be lost if I, will I? And, and I always say the same thing. You're asking the wrong question. What has God prepared for you? What has God designed for you? Because the question is not what will God permit. The question is what has God prepared? And Reuben and Gad are settling for something less than God has designed for them, than God has prepared for them, than God has promised them. And they're saying, we think it looks pretty good over here. And God is saying, you have no idea what lies ahead for you. You have no idea what I have promised you and prepared for you. There are some pitfalls of selling yourself short of God's promises. And I want to pick a few of them out of this passage in my last 10 minutes. Is I want you to notice this. Reuben and Gad were saying, we feel pretty good right here. We think we can live right here. And God said, okay. I want to say this. I want to, I want to be real clear. I believe that Receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost is 100% a necessity. So let's, let's excise that out of the conversation here. But there are many promises of God that you will not go to hell if you do not receive. One of them is that God has given unto every one of us spiritual gifts. 
Amen? 1 Corinthians tells us and outlines the nine gifts of the Spirit. And it says he gave them to each of us severally. I believe everybody has at least one or two. Everybody. It's ordained that, that there are things that God has promised you. That if you don't give tongues and interpretation this Sunday, it's not that God is going to judge you and send you to hell for it. But there are some things that God has prepared for his people that we are not walking in, that we are not operating in, that we are not receiving the inheritance that he has prepared for us. And what I'm preaching tonight is about those things. Is There are some things that God has promised and ordained for me. And I don't know about you, but I want everything. Everything that God has said belongs to me. God has given us spiritual authority. But that doesn't mean everybody walks in it. God has given us the ability to pray and to cast out devils. And I, I promise you there are people here who are baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost, been living for God that have never cast out a devil. The Bible says you shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. I believe that that is given to us. It's a promise for us. And, and what we tend to do is we tend to live over here in the permissive and we say it feels pretty good here. God has given us victory here and God is saying, look, I've got so much more for my church. And if you will just keep marching and if you will just stay with what God has ordained and planned, you don't even know what God has prepared for you. So listen, there, there are some things some pitfalls to selling yourself short of the promises of God. Look at what happened with Reuben and Gad. Moses said they still required to fight. He said, if you don't go and fight, you can't have the land that you're on. So when you go into the promised land and you fight in the promised land, you're fighting for something that you already have. You're fighting to keep what God has already given you rather than to inherit the promises in the land that you're fighting in. Now, that was a marked difference because they had to toil alongside other tribes as they are possessing their promise. And Moses is willing to let them settle the land of Gilead, but they got to fight with their brothers. Why? Because the church is one body. It's not just about me and mine. It's not just about arriving to a place where I've conquered my enemy and I'm living in a comfortable place. No, we are a church body. And so even if I've already overcome addiction, that doesn't excuse me from the fight. I've still got brothers and sisters that have not inherited the promises of God for them. Moses said, you still got to fight, except for here's the thing, is you're going to fight in a land but you're just fighting to keep what you have rather than to get what God designed for you. And that's the trade that Reuben and Gad make, is, is Gilead was conquered, but Canaan was not. And Moses recognized the temptation to forgo the fight. Just because I have conquered doesn't mean that my brothers have. And so when I stop marching forward and when I settle with where I'm at, it impacts the outcome of people that I might have ministered to if I was still marching. People I might have helped along the way if I was still marching. There are battles that might be impacted because I am not marching. So Moses said, you still got to fight. But here's the difference. You're fighting alongside people who are receiving the perfect planned promises of God for them. And you're just fighting to hang on to what you've already got. You're just fighting to hang on to something less than God has prepared for you. You see, ultimately, it's not just about me and mine. It's, it's about the kingdom. And they still had to fight, but with no promise of personal reward. Their reward was that they get to keep whatever they already have.
And I just want to say this. The enemy doesn't quit on Christians who settle for less. You still got to fight, honey. You still got an enemy, honey. And so if you're going to have to fight to keep what you have, why not keep fight to get what God has designed for you? If you're going to have to fight to keep something less than God promised and prepared, why not fight to receive everything and to be everything and to attain everything that God has called you to do? Why not? You've got to fight anyways. So they were not excused from the fight. Not only that, but they were exposed to attack. You see, when you settle for less than what God has for you, you expose yourself to the attack of the enemy. In 2 Kings 15, the Bible talks about the kingdom of Assyria and and how God sent Jonah to Nineveh. It's the same kingdom. The kingdom of Assyria then rises up and they begin to take on the world and God begins to use that kingdom of Assyria to judge the people. But listen to this. The first ones to become captive to Assyria was those who were living east of Jordan because they settled for something outside of God's perfect will and God's perfect plan for them. They are the first to become captive. Listen, David, David, King David did not sin when he stayed home from battle. It's a king's prerogative whether he wants to fight or not. But the Bible says at the time of year when the kings went forth to fight, David stayed home. And there's nothing inherently sinful about that. David was king. It's his prerogative. But when David stayed back from the battle is when Bathsheba came into his life. And he exposed himself to a temptation and to an attack from his flesh and from his enemy that he never would have been exposed to if he was doing what he ought to have been doing. And so we are exposed to attack. Listen. What am I really preaching about? I'm preaching about Christians who are settled. And they say, it's good enough here. God, my family's saved. I'm doing good. I'm blessed. The bills are paid. I come every Sunday and pastor preaches to me and I feel the presence of God. I'm, I'm a believer. I'm saved. But yet there are promises yet that have not been attained. And... I'm preaching to people, I'm preaching to us, I'm preaching to me, that often we make the mistake of Reuben and Gilead is is we get to a comfortable place and we say, it's good enough here. I have everything I need here. I'm sure there's others that need to conquer their enemies and to receive their inheritance, but I, I feel like it's good enough right where I'm at. They were exposed to attack because of their choice and listen ultimately they robbed themselves of God's best they had no way of knowing no way of knowing what God would have given them if they had just kept marching if they had just kept pressing on if they had just kept seeking the promise and the plan of God they have no way of knowing what they gave up in that exchange They chose the east side of Jordan and they don't know what kind of lands and what kind of of a territory that God had prepared for them. 1 Corinthians 2.9, this is what Paul strikes at when he, he writes these words, but as it is written, I 
hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Paul was saying, you don't even know how good God's promises really are. You don't even know how pervasively that God wants to use you and God wants to anoint you. You have no way of knowing the people that God wants to use you to win and to bring into his kingdom. You have no idea of the territory that God has ordained for you to conquer. Paul is saying you haven't even seen what God can do. You haven't even heard. No ear has heard and it has not even entered your heart how many good things God has prepared for them that love him. Listen to Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. The psalmist said, oh, how abundant is your goodness. We don't even know what God has for us. And there's really only one way to find out and it's to have a dogged determination that when I arrive at a place of comfort when I arrive at a place that I can live and where things are okay that I just keep pressing on that I keep pushing forward that I keep believing God for the best I want us to stand on our feet right now I keep believing Paul said it this way. He says, forgetting those things which are behind me. Listen to what he says. He says, I press. I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling. I press. What was Paul saying? Paul, at any moment, he could have thrown his hands up, Pastor, and said, man, I have attained enough. I've done enough. And this is a good land for cattle. I think I can settle here. But Paul, wired into the apostle of God, was an understanding that God still has more for me. That my story is not yet over. That I've not yet done all that God has called me to do. I've not yet reached everyone that God has called me to reach. I press. Somebody say, I press. I press. I press. I press. I press towards the mark. I'm reminded of the little lady came behind Jesus in the press for many it was enough to see him that day but the Bible says that she made her way through the press and she pressed against the press so that she could take hold of the hem of his garment and I felt the spirit directing me to this passage because I feel like there's such a danger in us settling for less and just going through the motions of church. I'm not talking about lost people. I'm not talking about people living in sin. But what I'm here to tell you tonight is that each and every one of you, God wants to use you mightily and miraculously. God wants to use you to lay your hands on the sick and they recover. It doesn't have to be a preacher. God wants to use you to reach the people at your job. But it can only come when I refuse to be satisfied with Gilead when I refuse to be satisfied with what God has already done for me and so my prayer tonight is that somebody would make the decision to press past Gilead 
God, I've not yet reached what you've called me to be and what you've called me to do. I wonder if you just lift your hands and can we pray together right now? Lord, God, you know your word has a way of getting into our hearts. God, I pray that you would begin to open eyes, open minds, open spirits to all that you want to do, God. There is so much more that you have for your church, God. It has not entered our hearts. We have not heard it with our ears or seen with our eyes all the things that you want to do in and through Christian Life Church. God, I pray that you would awaken us to the beauty of the promise and the call to press towards the mark. If you believe it, would you say amen? Somebody turn to your neighbor and say, I'm pressing past Gilead. I'm pressing past Gilead. Amen. I want to ask our ushers to come, and we're going to, um, at the end of this service, pray for our tithe and offering. If you're watching online, you can give at our website, clcmonroe.org. You can give here in person. You can text the word GIVE to 301-3601. There are many ways to give. And we're going to pray for our tithe and offering. Listen, come Sunday, we're going to have snow cones and pizza after church. Amen. Come, don't settle for less than what God has given you. Come out and enjoy that with us. Let's bow our heads and pray in the close of this service. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the people and the saints of God who support the church. We pray that you would bless our tithing and giving as we leave this house. And Lord, let us not settle for all that you have prepared for us. Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. God bless you.